Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is episode 87, Paradox in the Religious and Secular World, Part 2. My good friend Rob Carroll wrote this content. It is amazing. If you like any of our curriculum content, all you have to do is send us an email, ryan at brewtheology.org or janelle at brewtheology.org. And there's a way in which you can actually get this content for your community, whether you run a Sunday school class at church or you run a pub group or you want to do something with some coffee and tea during the day. It doesn't matter. Any community can do this. We make it accessible. It's about a page and a half of notes, questions, and resources where anybody from wherever they're coming from, whether they're coming off the street, they're an armchair theologian, or they're a seminary grad, it doesn't matter. This is about all kinds of people from all walks of life coming together and having a brutastic and hopalicious conversation. If you believe in what we do, there's several things in which you can do. Uh, you can be a partner, and you can, and we can help you start up your own chapter in your community. We have a leader guide and different ways to get you going. You can also just simply go online and go to iTunes, and you can rate the Brew Theology podcast. You can review it, write a review, and then you can share it online. We are at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram. Also on Twitter, we're Brew underscore Theology. And just, again, share the love with your friends. The more shares, the more cares, the more people who are listening, the more people know about what we're doing and what they could be doing. Um, This is just one big community and alliance, and I just love it. I love the fact that I see people uh, from different chapters across the nation doing different things, and I'm I'm loving it. I want to jump on a plane, and I want to go to New Jersey someday. I used to live there, and now I want to go back just to be a part of the Brew Theology community there for a night. That would be fantastic. Well, you can be a part of this family if you would like. So if, if that's not who you are, but you're like, you still support us, you can do so uh, by other ways. You can, like I said, you can share stuff online, or you could also uh, give a little donate, little you know, a little financial donation. If you go over to our donate page at brewtheology.org, there's a way in which you can give us $1 a month, $5 a month, whatever you like, and we would greatly appreciate that support to keep this moving along. And um, let's see, last but not least, two announcements, events that are coming up. We have the Wild Goose Festival, July 12th through 15th, where Janelle and I will be there. We'll have a table on the main road. We're going to be podcasting, and we're also going to have an interactive Brew Theology demo where you can just be a part of this community with the topic that we're going to arrange over some, yeah, tables and chairs and some beers. And so... Oh, Janelle is giving a talk as well, and so you don't want to miss that about women in faith. That's going to be pretty awesome. And we have a promo code. It's all caps, GOOSECAST18, GOOSECAST18, and you get 25% off. I also have some free tickets if you want to email me on the side and help us out run the booth. That'd be awesome. We, uh, last but not least, we have Theology Beer Camp. That's theologybeercamp.com. Go there, and we are celebrating with our partners in Brutastic Crime over at Homebrew Christianity Trip Fuller this 10-year anniversary party at Habitat Brewing. So that's going to be in August. We, Brew Theology, are getting to do a pre-gamer from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. So uh, if you go to theologybeercamp.com, you can register for the pre-game and the entirety of the weekend, which is three full days of theology, beer, great conversation, and it's like um, it's like summer camp, but better because you get as an adult, you get to hang out and drink beer with friends that are like-minded in a lot of ways. So, get nerdy, get a lot of beer, have a great time. All right, everybody, 
Talk to you soon. Peace. So we had we had people at the table last week who were having a hard time wrapping their mind around corrosive cynicism and irrelevant idealism. So if you can help the listeners understand the context of this, that's probably going to be helpful before we answer this question. I I think these were also terms from the book. Matthew, you may remember. Um, I think these come straight out of the book. And so I'm going to do my best to remember exactly how Palmer defined them. It actually came up as a, as a, um, someone at our table didn't particularly care for how the question was set up. And, and I think that's part of the conversation. I think it's interesting. Um, but so, so corrosive cynicism being maybe the best way to describe it is in the context of a conversation we had in brew theology two weeks ago, we had a woman come in and talk about, um, mass incarceration and prison reform. Uh, and we had a couple of folks at our table, um, who were, who basically said until big money's out of politics, this, there's no conversation to be had here that like that money driving, um, into politicians pockets. Like we're just, we're wasting our time even having a conversation. Um, so that being on the end of maybe a little bit of corrosive cynicism, because there's no, there's no, that just sort of shuts down conversation. There's nowhere there's sort only of one silver bullet. Absolutely. Yep. Only, and, uh, um, so, and then irrelevant idealism being like the money in politics is, doesn't really play a role. And if we could just, you know, love each other a little better than, you know, we could solve this problem. <laughs> so maybe uh, that's my best way of describing it and using an example. Um, and, but I did use them as general terms in the question, which, which maybe par- part of the issue too is like, yeah, reading that you're like, wait a minute, unless you really apply it to a scenario, maybe it's a little bit difficult to put those there without defining them. Um, so, uh, I mean, I do think it's hard to remain in that gap in some ways and particularly today because like I'm not going to go on the social media and the internet tangent thing, but like, I mean, I know that I know it's not good for me right now in particular in our current political climate in our, so like places like that will drive me to corrosive cynicism really quickly. Um, so anyway, that was my intent with the question is, you know, do you naturally lean one way or another? Janelle just said (laughs) that she does. And if so, how do you stay in the gap where, and where Palmer's where Palmer says the action is where you actually are liberated to be a part of the action. Um, so how do you stay in the gap and what are those different, I mean, I'm interested in this on a really practical level. Like what, what do we all individually around the table do? But um, it could be it could be like in in our community. What does our community do? It could be individually. I came at it from the individual perspective. I mean, number one for me, um, and this is social media, is I don't fight online. Um, I may disagree completely, and I may feel really offended. And if it's something that I feel is um, abusive or is um, hurting other people, I I will report it, but I am not going to fight with you online in this invisible ethos where you're not having to look at my face. 
and I don't have to look at your face. It's, it's not a healthy place for me. I have friends though. I have this, this one female friend and she is a powerhouse of has no hesitation to like take this stuff on online right there and be graceful and loving and be firm and truthful. I just, that's, that's not totally my skill set. If any of you listened to this at all. And so I found it's just better. Like that's not productive for my time. Now there are lots of other ways that I can have those conversations and interactions, but just online is not probably the best venue for me to do that. Um, and so that's, that's one line that I stand pretty, pretty firmly on. And if there were something where I was deeply concerned about something someone said, and if like, what was the outcome of that statement, I would message them privately and, and reach out and say, Hey, I'm a little concerned about this point of view that you have. Um, but I've had to 30 day pause some people on Facebook because I'm not going to fight with you and I don't need that input in my life. Um, so I don't know if that's a cop-out. It might be, but it is a coping mechanism that I have chosen. I thought this question was really interesting because in some ways, I think it's so natural for me to not be overly cynical or not be too idealistic. I don't really find myself being uh, surprised in a good way or in a bad way often. I think I've always had a fairly pragmatic spirit and approach about things. It just kind of keeps me between those two poles. And I think maybe part of that is I don't really participate in online communities. I don't get a lot of value out of it. I've done it in the past, but you know, I haven't been on Facebook in eight or nine years and I love interacting with people in person. I like to see their face when I'm meeting with them. And I think that human connection really happens very powerfully in person. And I think that being online and the anonymity it provides brings out the worst in humanity. You know, it's when people feel like they can truly be cruel to one another. And I think that so few positive things happen online and compared to the negative in just what I've seen that I, I just think that a lot of people would be better off not participating <laughs> nearly as much in online communities and just engaging with people in person. But I was, it was fascinating for me to think about it from the other perspective, because at our table, a lot of people talked about having idealistic point of views that ended up making them cynics because they had high hopes for things and they were let down. And I think I'm a person who generally one piece of my solitude is I generally reflect back on the day and I think about the ways that things unfolded and what to expect from people and what to expect from situations. And as part of that, I'm constantly reevaluating and resetting my expectations. And so I'm never, it's rare that I'm too far off the mark in terms of, okay, this is the type of action that produces this type of reaction. And so if I'm looking for X then do Y or, or whatever it is. And that's kind of how I keep between those poles is just that introspection at the end of the day and thinking about, my actions that I created, how that resulted and how that resonated and landed with others. And then likewise, what to expect from others in various situations that I put myself into. Do you mind if I put you on the spot and ask you if that's a, if, if you have like a practice for that reflection or if you, or if that's just like on my commute, I generally think about or whatever or on my walk home or whatever, or is there, or is there like a structured practice you go through with that? Yeah. Sometimes it's more structured than others. I try to do a 10 to 15 minute meditation every day, but I do have 
in some ways the unfortunate pleasure of a long commute that <laughs> allows me for a lot of time for reflection during the day. A lot of times I'll fill that with podcasts or audiobooks, but on days that I've just had a lot going on at work or a lot going on personally, I will just sit in silence and just be reflective about the day. Or another thing that I really recommend is if you are having a bad start to your day or having a bad middle part of your day and you're on your way home or, uh, on your way to work and you're not feeling great, turn everything off and just make yourself smile during the duration of your commute. And just engaging in the practice of smiling, you will arrive at your destination happier than you were when you started because there is just a connection between your physical expression of how you feel and how you'll actually end up feeling. And so that's another thing that I think is kind of life changing that people don't do enough. <laughs> that's awesome. I, um, I mean, I, I also believe in the metaphysical of community. So like the, of, of face-to-face, sorry, the metaphysical, metaphysical of face-to-face and that there is, um, there's a lot of brilliant scientists who I won't be able to quote right now. This isn't a, I'm not breaking new ground here. Um, but, uh, but I believe in that sort of metaphysical human connection piece. Also not breaking new ground to say that like, um, you know, a lot of people say this, comedians say this, a lot of pop culture psychology, pop psychologists say this, a lot of faiths say this, um, you know, a lot of what we see online feels like loneliness sort of manifested in online, you know, <laughs> I, um, evil, yeah. On online communities or online. And, and I don't think it's all bad. Right. But, yeah. but like the stuff you're talking about that is, um, that is, uh, like just kind of hateful and, uh, that a lot of that is like a manifestation of loneliness. It seems like, Absolutely. as opposed to like solitude, solitude of being in a car without any music playing where you're reflecting on and evaluating things. So I think that that's, that's interesting too. When you ask about practices or practical things. One of the things that has really helped me was uh, when Miguel de la Torre was here and we asked him about like, how do you choose what to be, active about because if I'm trying to be activist about everything I'm going to get overloaded and especially if you lean more towards corrosive cynicism the world can become really dark really fast <laughs> and so um what he the what he recommended to us is that pick pick two or three things and those are your things and for that's not forever it's not for your whole life it's for right now in this moment these are my issues or these are the things I'm going to be active in. And so for me, um, one, the one that comes always to the top will always be feminism and equality that that's never going to go away. That's always going to be the one that if I have to choose where I spend my energy, that's going to be number one for me. And then um, I've actually, and I know this is controversial, but I found such redemptive, hopeful value in standing with my LGBTQ neighbors and friends and just saying to them, I see you and you are human and I will stand with you. Um, just being able to walk with them um, and just let them know that they're seen um, because I think they're so ostracized in our world. And um, I don't really have any stake in that personally, but but I love them and I care for them and I want them to know that they're loved um, in the world they're in. And so those are two things. And then lately I, I would say that racism is, is right in there as well. Like I will speak up and say, 
um, what you just posted is inappropriate. Um, I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to fight with you, but I will give you resources because that's, that's kind of my thing. I'll send you links and, and I'll have a conversation with you offline about this. Um, but this is a real thing. And if like a, uh, practitioner providing a service for me was talking during a procedure about the ridiculousness of racism and black lives matters and made the, the comment in his little rant while I could not speak um, about like, well, I just, I don't know anything about this. And so I, I took the Netflix account that I was looking at the video on while I was having my teeth worked on. And I said, go watch this. If you really don't think that you know what you're talking about, then start there and then read this book. And then next time I come in, maybe we can have a, a real conversation and you can stop saying things like this. Because in that case, I felt like that was a, a level of ignorance and just privilege that, that had to be confronted nicely and carefully. But like, don't tell me you don't know because you can learn right there. Um, and so I think those are ways that practically, you know, choose your, your things. Now that doesn't mean you'll never say anything about anything else, but when it comes to like being knowledgeable, having resources available, um, being able to point people to ways to learn, like these are the areas where I'm going to be more focused. Can't help, but, um, can't help, but bring up with your story about that specific instance, the Roshi Joan how uh, Roshi or Roshi anybody know Joan Halifax um, her quote uh, all too often our so-called strength comes from fear not love instead of having a strong back many of us have a defended front shielding a weak a weak spine um, in other words we walk around brittle and defensive trying to conceal our lack of confidence if we strengthen our backs metaphorically speaking and develop a spine that's flexible but sturdy. Um, then we can risk having a soft front that's open, willing. I read that as willing to learn, willing to explore, representing choice, choiceless compassion. The place in our body where these two meet, strong back and soft front, is the brave, tender ground. Um, how can we give and accept care without a strong, uh, strong back, soft front, compassion, moving fast past fear into a place of genuine tenderness? And it goes on a little bit from there. Um, that sort of paired with the greatest courage is that which it takes to be vulnerable in front of those with whom we passionately disagree, I think is an awesome Francis Kissling quote. She's a wonderful author, scholar, religious activist. Um, but I think that that's interesting too, when it comes to like the ignorance that is, I'll speak for like a community. I feel like, um, I've spent a lot of time around sort of like white middle class, a lot of privilege, um, and, and a lot of fear around, um, around like, oh my gosh, what does this black lives matter thing mean? And I'm not excusing it, ignorance here. Um, but I, I'm interested in the question too, of like, how do we arm people with some sort of courage to watch the Netflix documentary, which is like the, the least thing you can do. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an interesting question. And I think suggesting things like the Netflix documentary to people is brilliant because it is like, it's not that scary. They don't have to go to a March, you know, they can watch it in their living room on TV. Um, they can throw things at the TV if they absolutely, want. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it, it, but there's a level of exposure that then happens. So I think that's a, that's a cool, 
suggestion, but had to, those um, two quotes, I think are, are relevant to that conversation too. Well, and I think that that highlights to one of the gaps right now in our cultural conversation is um, we're trying to do everything in tweets and Facebook posts. A lot of us are not, I mean, not just certain people. And if you want to understand some of these issues, you must go deeper than that. You, you, you can't really engage in these topics at that surface level. Um, and like this, um, this quote you read from Joan Halifax reminds me of um, some stuff I've read recently on white privilege and um, white guilt. Like it really resonates with this. Like you need to be strong and tender and you can't get caught up in the emotion of like, well, I feel guilty because I didn't know. And I didn't do all these things like, let it go. It's time to act, learn, get, get out there, do the work um, and make relationship with your brothers and sisters. And, and that takes risk and vulnerability and courage. Um, but that's the only way that things really, really change. Cause if I stay in this place of, well, I'm just a white girl from Michigan and I was never exposed to this. Like that isn't going to change anything. Um, I have to be willing to take that risk and get out there and do the thing and, and do it humbly and, um, be willing to learn from my brothers and sisters. And so, and I think too, within that framework, you have people who are obviously going to be on different parts of that spectrum. Those who are, we would say ignorant. And I don't mean that in like, Oh, you're stupid. I mean like, no, they just don't know. Okay. And then you have those who have like been in that world. Like, I don't mean like they've studied it. I'm saying they've experienced it. They've lived it their entire life. And then there are those who are sort of on other, you know, let me watch the Netflix thing. I guess I might throw my shoe at the TV. To then like suddenly like, oh, I'm soft enough again, but this is just ridiculous bullshit. And then you get, you know, so like, but you have, I think that no matter where you are on that spectrum, like you have to meet in the middle and that's the hardest part. And that, that's sort of the goal of this question of like, how do you do it? You're going to lean one way or the other on any, any issue under the sun. And we could talk about a lot of issues here that I think ultimately, like uh, if you get face to face, I think people actually agree on. Now, there's going to be some people that obviously don't um, on, on maybe some bigger issues, but I think their hearts are aligned in more ways than not. I think there is common ground, but then being able, but being able to sit, right? Being able to, all right, I got to breathe because I, I want to like go off right now and I will, <laughs> but I can't take this, per- not taking it personally, not taking someone's thoughts personally. It's like, that's what they think. It's their, and like, so at what point in Western culture do we become our, our opinions? Like, eh. I mean, opinions do matter. Don't get me wrong, but we judge people by what they think. Now, if they live a certain way, that's, you know, jackassy toxic, then you, you can get a little bit more bold, maybe a little bit more in their face. If you have, if you have the relationship, the thing is you have to have the relationship and maybe going back to online, most people online on public threads don't have a relationship. That's the problem. Sorry. Got to do it. One, a, a famous Parker Palmer quote, our capacity to be we the people depends m- more upon the quality of our relationships than how many arguments or debates we win. You have to be in relationship in some way. And, and I'm, I'm willing if somebody calls me out if they love me and they actually want what's best for me. And I have great arguments actually with some people that... I mean, you know, and Robin, you and I know somebody in particular that we argue with at times and we, it's like at the end of the day, we've got each other's back. It's all good, but I'm going to respect that person and vice versa. Even if you want to throw your hands in the air, I walk out of the room, you're going to come back and have a beer at the end of the day or next day sometimes. (laughs) 
So one thing I'm interested about is I find the hardest people to engage in conversation when there are matters of disagreement is when I find that that person is not actually curious about a different perspective. They're coming, you know, they're coming with a perspective and they're not actually coming to hear another. They're not actually coming to learn. They're coming to tell you how they feel and why you're wrong. And that never really gets productive. And if they're not innately curious, I don't know how to get them to that first step. And it's not your responsibility. Yeah. And that, that may be okay. And I can, I mean, I can say that because I've been that person um, earlier, Matthew, you said something that triggered in me, um, like how we have knowledge and we can use that flexibly. But then, I mean, and this is, this is, this is a personal critique from my experience of evangelicalism. I was born and raised in the nineties and we did apologetics and apologetics, I think at its core is about teaching people about Jesus and the Bible and learning, but what it became to a nationally ranked debater was a way to win. And it didn't just become that to me. It became that to a lot of people. And I think that that, unfortunately, is part of what has shaped this very current milieu that we're in and some of the struggles that we're having and exactly what you said. If you have no interest in learning my perspective, then I can't have a conversation with you because I've got all the cards and I have all the answers and I just need to fix you because you're a sinner and you're wrong. And I told like, that is not the way it is in every conversation. And when we are in relationship, that is different. But the problem is right now, it feels like we're not even willing to find out, is there a relationship there that we can have? So we can start to come to the middle of this. Um, it's either or it's, it's either this or that, but there's no middle ground where Jesus can be happy. And I just don't believe that about Jesus anymore. Um, I, and I don't think we see that in the way he lived his life. I don't see that we see that in his teaching. There are sins. There are things that are really bad for us personally, really bad for us as a culture. But Jesus' response always was to meet the person face-to-face and have that conversation or to meet that woman that touched his hem of his robe and pick up her hand and help her stand up. And that's the piece that that's absent here is that if I can't share a beer with you, um, or coffee or coffee, (laughs) I, I, yeah, I can't have that conversation with you. And that's hard. I, I, so this is an interesting question and this, please know that this comes from a place of a lot of privilege acknowledged at a time, um, that I'm still working through. Right. But, um, is it our responsibility? And I think responsibility is a strong word. I don't know that it's our responsibility. Would it be Jesus-like of us to, to listen to that person who's not curious, to listen to their point of view, to create relationship, to get to a place where they might be curious? Now, different settings yeah. <laughs> don't allow for that to happen. Well, the, 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 and you need time. That was a primary evangelical tool in the 90s and 2000s. Was is it? Is that I get to know you so that then I can convert you. Sure. And I mean, that's just that's, so that's true. what it was. So it can, be, it, it can be used for... It can be used both ways. Totally. But I think 
the burden, the responsibility, I think, lies with the person that is looking. Oh, this is hard to put into words. Like, is looking for the best interest of the whole. And yes, there's perspective in that. Um, but let me not to get too political, but I heard a defense of the separation of children from their parents today on the radio and our current administration feels that this is their right and responsibility and that they are living out the law to separate children, including blind children and tiny children from their parents. And he could not answer the question of, do you connect them back with their family when their family is deported? Well, we do the best we can. Sorry, dude, that's not good enough. And so like, that that's an example that comes to mind of whether you want to call me a liberal crackhead or not <laughs> is fine. But when I tell you that my concern is that those children do not have permanent trauma that damages them for the rest of their lives because of a policy in our country, if you can't sit down and have a conversation with me about that, something's wrong. Like it, at the point where we have lost sight of the care and compassion for all children, one, stop talking to me about them before they're born. I'm done. And two, if you really care about life, then you need to care about their health and their wholeness and their worthiness. And I don't care where they come from. I'm not saying... I won't even like if they need to go back, then send them all back, but send them back with their family. And I think that's an interesting like point to make following the question about like, because that's a, that's a strong example of like, there's no opportunity to make relationship and have a conversation there. You know what I mean? There should be. Yeah. Isn't this, we're talking kids. Sure. Caroline just introduced our podcast and, (laughs) and juice is out running around in the backyard. And don't we all, we would do anything to protect them. All of us in this room, any of you listening, if you were at wild goose and saw juice off doing something, you'd catch her and bring her back to our booth with no wild goose, but yeah, someday, someday, (laughs) someday, but like, I get really, I think where corrosive cynicism sets in is when, like, I don't understand how we can't have a conversation about children's lives. I get that we disagree on policy. That's, that's fine. But we're, we're not talking, we're not talking 13 year olds. We're not talking 18 year olds. We're talking four year olds who don't speak English. Yeah. Well, and, and that may, like, I, I totally agree with your, your point. And that may be also where, like, if we actually sat down in a room with no cameras and no, like the conversation may be approached in a different way. It may be a different conversation. Like, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on kids and families? You know, you know what I mean? Cause there's a whole, uh, complex web of garbage. It is, but the only way that we make a move forward is in relationship. And I think, Honestly, one of the people that's demonstrating that for us right now is Pope Francis, and he's getting himself in a lot of hot water, but that's because he's having honest, authentic, relational conversations with people that have been labeled the minority by the Catholic Church, and he's telling them that you are loved, and you are worthy, and you matter to God, 
and he's willing to say those things. And if he can do it, then the rest of us better get on board here um, and have the conversations. So much of this has to go back to this interdependence and like this relational philosophy that has to get beyond the head of what does it even mean to be interdependent to like, no, you're actually humans of all kinds, regardless if they're from America or from the other side of the world, whether they're young or they're old, like we're we're all connected and we're connected to the soil and we're connected to the air. It's all a part of who we are now. um, Again, the online stuff does get in the way. So taking, because Jesus never used Twitter, uh, but I mean, uh, <laughs> but here's the pro- here's the problem that we have. Here's I guess the the paradox we live in. You're not going to get rid of the online world. It's not going anywhere. In fact, you can use it to your advantage. It could be a great resource. And so to to completely dismiss it, uh, if if everybody says, well, that's never going to happen. Like um, there there's a balance somewhere within that. So then I'm looking at this also going. We're going to have different beliefs and policy intellectual beliefs, uh, theological beliefs, philosophical beliefs. And, and yet with, even within your own sort of tribes, you have people who are, let's just put this in easy categories. Okay. You have the systems people, this would maybe be the corrosive cynicism, right? And then you have your, your dream weavers. You have, you know, your, that would be me, the idealist. Um, but then also, so in the Bible you have, I'm going to get theological here. So you have in the old Testament, you have priests, and they're like the systems people. But then you had prophets, and the prophets uh, have a lot of um, you know words in the Bible, by the way, if you, if you actually read it. A lot of those guys have things that the priests don't want to hear. And then you get to the kings, and the kings really don't want to hear it. But yet society needs kings, needs priests, and needs prophets. Now I'm using scriptural language here, but um, I, I, so I'm married to a systems person. And I think after 16, 17 years of marriage, we've kind of met more in the middle where I used to kind of think that everybody um, everybody was good and that the um, doors were just going to open and whatever happened is eventually going to work for, for the best. And you got to believe, you, you know, the glass is always half full. I mean, Rob, you kind of resonate to a degree, but then you live long enough. And if you're married to somebody who goes, Ryan, no one's looking out for you except for you. And I, I was told that many times. So eventually you rub off on the person who's a systems person and they become a little bit more of a dreamer and vice versa. But that, that takes, this is 17 years of marriage in a marriage. This is just, this is a marriage. So going back to interdependence, um, what if we saw the world as, and I'm using this as a metaphor, we're married to the world, you know, um, the people who not just don't just live on your block, but the guys who go down your alley and look in your trash cans to, uh, the guys who are online, who voted for the person that you don't like, like if if that became more of a reality, that it's the we're married to each other, that's a tough shift. It's a big shift. So I can't convince somebody of that. Um, and this is my dreamer coming out, but I, I think I think in a way you can meet one person at a time, and um, that's all that's all that you can do. You're not responsible. So after a while, if if your person cleaning your teeth isn't going to listen or watch the show, that's fine. Move on to the next person. And maybe that next person could reach that dentist because you you maybe can't because of the language in which you speak. And that's okay. We all speak in different languages. And that's the dreamer in you speaking, Ryan. You've been married for 17 years to a systems person, and you're still the dreamer. I mean, there are just so many hours in a day that you can talk to someone, much less get to know them. I mean, I teach, what, 100 students a year. And they come back to me two years later, I have no clue what their names are, even though I'm with them every single day. And I have a tremendous impact on them. 
but I don't remember their names, you know, a formal relationship, poof, they're gone. I don't know that it's our responsibility. I think we can only do as much as God allows us to do at the time, you know. Take the time that we're given and use it to the best of our abilities, but don't feel guilty if we don't achieve everything we think we can achieve because it's going to drive ourselves crazy. I, I agree with you. I think we have to let ourselves off the hook for because it does turn into guilt and shame. You don't even need religion to do that. Like that's already <laughs> <Not kidding>. there. <laughs> <laughs> and why do we have that feeling? We could get Freudian. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going my, there. Your mother's mom, in the my room. Mom's in the room. <laughs> oh man! Well, it goes back to this, the blessing and the, and the original sin. Yes, God blessed them. He gave them that beautiful garden to live in. He gave them everything under the sun they could possibly want. They screwed up, made the wrong choice. We do the same thing. I watched your little girl upstairs. You know, tonight, define you over and over and over, talking about Juicy. You didn't have to teach her to do that. She made her own choices. By the way, those who are listening, Juice is not her real name. (laughs) No. (laughs) And she's 20 months old. (laughs) So give me a break. Yeah, and it's only going to get worse when she's 13. (laughs) So anyway, I'm just, I'm all for not accepting the guilt when the guilt is not due. I think you make an interesting point and you're saying, I don't think we have the responsibility, but then you actually went on to say the, the, I don't want to say responsibility, but you you felt an obligation. You fulfilled the obligation, right? Like you know that you make an impact on those kids' lives, and you've done everything you can each moment you spend with them to make the most of it. And I think that is the responsibility. And I think that we don't we shouldn't carry around guilt and shame for things that are beyond us doing and trying our best. And then I think it hits that point, and you just you let it go because beyond that. It's not going to do anyone any good. You're just going to cause yourself a lot of stress. You can't actually make more of a positive impact. And so you do your best and you got to let it go. What about true community? Since this goes back full circle to that's the foundation from the, the paradox, which we started. So true community, it's discussed in our gatherings a lot and everybody's had it, whether they grew up in a home or they had friends from high school um, or even in their own solitude, that could be your own community. So what do you, but what are those like hallmarks of true community um, and what does it take to participate fully in that? And do you have examples? Examples are great. Quick book plug. Um, Peter Block wrote an amazing book called The Structure of Belonging. Um, it's awesome. So check it out if you're really interested in the community conversation. And he talks about some, he makes some arguments for hallmarks of true community that I didn't review before writing this stuff down and or tonight. Um, so anything that I would say tonight is kind of freewheeling, but, um, it seems like true community has to have, I think there has to be some, some semblance of, of like agape love in true community. That's the dreamer coming out in me. Hello. Um, but you've got to, there's got to be, there has to be a level of love and there has to be a level of forgiveness that comes out of that love because nobody, I mean, people aren't perfect and, in community, but if you can love and forgive people, um, I think that seems like a hallmark. Um, but I'm interested in what people have to say around the table for sure. Well, I think one of the, I, I totally agree with that. And I think one of the ways the church sometimes gets in the way of that is when we're measuring how pure you are, how holy you are, that gets in the way of having true community because admitting that I'm faulty or that I'm not doing well or that I've sinned or made bad choices becomes a marker of how unworthy you are. 
And so I, th I think that people get trapped in that. I think they, they want to, they'll, they'll come Sunday and Wednesday and Friday and do all the things, but they, there's this deep sense of unworthiness that if I shared with you what's actually going on with me, you would not love me. And that, that paradox is one that I think that, that the church really needs to examine and work on of what, what, how do you, how do you step away from that? How do you not um, create this kind of underground of feeling of like, well, I could be authentic, but if I'm authentic, then I'm sinning and I'm failing. And so how do I, how do we do real community where we can be honest and hold each other accountable in healthy ways that helps us all move forward as a community. I think that's a really hard piece that I I've only seen out lived out once in my faith journey. And I know earlier before we started talking on the podcast, you and I were talking about the Lutheran church. And mm -hmm. what's funny is I could never be a Lutheran because they're all grace. And yet that's what I want to glean from the Lutherans. And that's what right. Luther, when he started that movement, not knowing what it would become was about grace because it was all about works. And I mean, the pendulum is always going to swing. Yeah. That's why I got my beef with Lutherans. Yeah. I, I still think like if you could like embrace all the goodness of what that message is, which it really is just the message of Jesus, right? It's, it's just having grace for yourself and for others and forgiveness. Um, you, so, I mean, I, I'm just curious as somebody who's been involved in Lutheran churches versus Nazarene churches, has, have you seen that shift? I definitely see that there's no, in the current congregation I'm in, there's no expectation that you need to meet any standard. Um, not, and that, that sounds really terrible probably to some people, but like you just come, you just be present. Like, and that's being part of the community. And I think there is some, some real beauty in that. Um, I don't know that it necessarily solves all the problems though. Um, because then, then it's, it's also hard to connect in other ways. So church is complicated. I think, I think that man, if I wish there was one thing we could all like maybe say to all churches, like this is complicated. Stop trying to make it easy because it's not easy. It's not, Jesus didn't fix it all when it comes to relationships, being able to work perfectly every time with every person in every moment. Like we need to recognize that that is not what's happening in most church communities. So then how do we in healthy ways um, help people do that in, in goodness, whether that's small groups or um, recommending people to counseling or just being honest about the fact that we don't talk about money while here or we are going through a church transition and we have no idea what we're doing, so maybe we should get help. Like, like I just think that there's a lot of um, lack of transparency that then seeps into the individual relationships as well. It's, it's almost impossible to be vulnerable I mean, yeah, it, it is. Here's my, the, the dreamer's getting real. Okay. You can't, you can't just like unzip right in front of the whole congregation. I'm just saying, let I me mean, to use that metaphor. That's, that's who scandalous, but you know, one or two people can see the real you because you trust them and they're going to forgive you and they love you. Um, but yeah, and I think maybe you just, that's, that's the system's corrosive cynicism person that needs to be within us all. You can't trust everybody and that's okay. Yeah. But you, but there are. You should find a couple of people at least. I think what's interesting with my experience with brew theology so far, though, is, is that I can be very real around the table every week, and um, 
that's okay. And there's, there's not this overlay of judgment about my worthiness of being at the table or my character or my um, holiness. Like, I can just be at the table and be like, you know, I've had a really rough month and I don't really know what my label is at the moment, if I'm being honest. And that's okay. And I think, I think church communities, more spiritually driven communities would be so much healthier if you could have those conversations. But I have not really experienced that in a, inside of a more Christian community. Um, and I think that that's something that we've captured here in what we do. That is, that is why I keep coming back and doing this work because we're giving people the space to say like, life is good. Life is not good. I'm frustrated with this. I'm loving this. I'm doing this and I can be happy for you and I can come alongside you and I can have a beer with you. And it's been life giving and life transforming to be in a community where I can just be myself and not have to always be trying to prove who I am. And when I hear that, and when I think about, you know, what I think makes brew theology and the community that comes together unique and special and that allows for that vulnerability, it really is from a foundation of respect and it's a foundation of genuine curiosity. And I just, I don't think you get that in a lot of communities where people are willing to just respect each other, come on an equal footing, no matter what your background, your experience is, and be genuinely curious about other people's experience. And it's interesting when I read the the quote that you mentioned earlier, the greatest courage is that which it takes to be vulnerable in front of those with whom we passionately disagree. I mean, there's many people with whom I passionately disagree that I'm happy to be vulnerable in front of. And for me, I feel like I can't be vulnerable in front of someone when I don't feel like I have mutual respect with that individual. And so I think that's something that really is the hallmark of, of a strong community is when you can come together and agree to disagree, but do so respectfully. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe one of the toxic strings from my own history and tradition is just, there's always this judging of whether or not you're Christian enough and that, that string stays there. Um, and I, I don't feel that when I come to the table at brew theology, probably for the first time in my life. Um, and I, along with kind of what you're saying, like I, we're pro- I say we're 50% atheist agnostic in our group. I'm so thankful for all of you that come to the table because I learned so much. I learned so much about my faith in having those conversations. And I've, I was taught my entire life that that wasn't possible. And they, they, lied because they didn't know because they don't have any friends that don't believe. Um, and I think that that's another, that's another truth. Like you have to have a wide community to really experience community. I, I do have a Craig Blomberg okay. quote. So Craig Blomberg is a new Testament professor, distinguished new Testament professor at Denver seminary, my alma mater. He's an evangelical professor here, but here's what he said recently about us. He said, uh, with rare exceptions, people who are not already Christians don't walk into a church and randomly ask to talk about life's most universal questions, but they will talk with friends and acquaintances about them, sometimes in a pub over a good beer. And then here's his plug. <laughs> Brew Theology facilitates precisely those conversations with weekly topics, often facilitated by a guest speaker across the lines of um, adherents of many different religions with no religion at all, and they do so courteously 
courteously and yet with conviction, a very special place. And here's a guy that I would say that probably all that's around the table while we respect him, and he was a big part of my life as a, as a young adult, I, I don't agree with him fully on all things. And I, I think that we could all say, and he would say the same thing. If he were at the table, he probably would be the smartest guy at the table, and he, but he wouldn't care. And I, I look at a guy like that going, yes. And when we had David Bichart as well, why does it take somebody who is a professional who gets it? I mean, and, and I love that. You know, it's like we, we like the endorsements from the, those guys who are higher ups, but like he's looking down from his seminary position and goes, oh, this is how church should be if, if it should exist at all. Like it should, I mean, and he would, again, wouldn't agree with everybody around the table. Um, anyway, that's just, it's again, one of those things where I go, hey, Craig Blomberg likes what we do and he's, <laughs> you know, he gets it. <laughs> well, it, I, I think it brings up an, like an interesting, and I don't like now I'm like tying my own brain into a, pretzel over what paradox is or isn't, but, but, uh, but I think in Matthew, you spoke about this a little bit and you could probably speak about it with much more eloquence than I could. But, but I mean, my personal exploration of Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion in, in, um, in like graduate school was brought me closer to what I felt was a more, uh, was a Christian faith that I was more, I had more fidelity to and, um, and, and closer to my, to my faith as a self-proclaimed like progressive Christian. And, uh, and yet we're afraid to engage in the conversation. Like what does Eastern religion look like? What, you know, what are, what are like existentialists talking about who are, you know, what's Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah. talking about? Um, we're a little afraid to engage in those, but I think, we hear that from people is, Oh man, the more I looked out at other, other faith traditions or other, um, practices, the closer I, you know, sort of counterintuitively, the closer I came to my own, to my own faith or, um, or whatever the case or my own practices of, of, uh, being healthy and maintaining my, my healthy life or whatever the case. Well, one issue of faith that has always, I guess the right word has haunted me is this idea that anyone who's not Christian is the other, like they're not, they're going to go to hell or somewhere else or just lay buried in the ground. And this idea really for me was something that was prominent in my life because of my mom's side of the family. So a little quick background on that. My mom at 17 years old, converted her whole family to the Jehovah's Witness. I guess she was very persuasive, and they all, <laughs> all of her sisters became Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, then she was the one, of course, who got married to an Air Force guy. And of course, the military is something that's off the table for Jehovah's Witnesses, even like the association with it. So she's like, well, I choose him. And then became not a Jehovah's Witness, yet that left the rest of that family, like as that Jehovah's Witnesses, who have very, who draw a very solid line between these people are going to be saved and resurrected and these people are not. And so interacting with that family, it really has taught me some of those lessons that you have, that we've been talking about, about um, how do you form community with people who you passionately disagree with? And it's been a struggle because I know at the end of the day that he'll never be his true, like my cousin, for example, because my cousin and I have been good friends like our whole lives, but we know we'll never be our true selves unless we resolve that question. And I think for me, that's always been an issue with me as far as Christianity and as far as faith is that how do you truly connect with people, but then maintain this burden? Yeah. And yeah. that's kind of where I'm at with that. And why Eastern religion opened those doors up to me in a lot of ways is because I saw that you can 
discover, you can be spiritual, you can um, ascend in ways spiritually that as a Christian with all these doubts and questions dragging you down that you might not be able to. And like that's why for me, I really try to see the parallels between Eastern religion and Christianity because I've come to a point where I don't really see people who practice Buddhism or Hinduism as the other, as someone who's going to like, that. okay, yeah, they don't know as much as me. Like I have this knowledge, like I've walked past that point and now I'm trying to piece it back together. And that's where the question of paradox really comes in because that is a paradox because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the light. He didn't really leave room open for other faiths or other religions. If you read it in that way as a systems person, as Ryan was saying earlier, but if you become that dreamer, it's like, how do those two forces balance themselves out between the dreamer and between the system? And how do those two really maintain harmony? I think that's a great question. I, I have found freedom in that myself, but it's taken me years to get to that point theologically because of a Western systems approach. And, but yeah, I mean, I, and I, it got me looking more Hebraically in the, you say Eastern, I think, you know, you're talking about Buddhism and specifically, probably not within the Judeo-Christian framework. I'm, I'm just even my own sort of Hebrew Jewish perspective, probably more of the reform side, by the way, but you know, that led, that led me to be okay. I mean, so even the word interfaith would have been kind of weird for me to even like, Oh, inter- interfaith. So that's a, that's, that's a paradox, right? I mean, it's, but that's ultimately the communities that, uh, and it's not just about brew theology. Like that, those are the communities that exist in the world the secular world that we, I hate to use that word secular, but it's in the title. So, but you know what I'm saying? Like outside of your church, your religion, your tribe, like that's, that's the world we rub shoulders with on a daily basis with our next door neighbors. So how did we get to these places? Like, I mean, you have your story, you know, I, I have my, but it's taken, it's taken years to get to that point. It's, it's maturity going back to like having grace on your old self. That's what I have to remind myself about. Not that I'm better, I'm different. Um, I like where I'm at, but I have to have grace on my old self. And Lauren will remind me often. My wife will say, remember how you were 10, 15 years ago? Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Have grace. Have grace. Can we maybe tie this into a little bit of scarcity and abundance? Because I don't feel like we touched that. And I think a lot of this actually links pretty tightly into our sense of scarcity and abundance of whether we feel there is a lack that we have or could have versus the abundance that's promised to us in whether it's a Christian faith or a lot of other traditions. How does this paradox of scarcity and abundance function around us in the world that we're living in right now? How are you experiencing that right now? One of the reasons I love brew theology is because it's intergenerational. And um, I find a lot of wisdom in just talking with people who are who have more years of experience than I have. Um, and I find a lot of insight and scarcity and abundance in those conversations. Um, because like, if you, if I talk to somebody who's like, if I had a conversation here with Karen and or Nancy, I'm sorry, Nancy and Nancy, you and I talked about what's been abundant in your life. You know, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a guess that there's, it's been like, you know, uh, faith community, your children, um, you know, your, your marriage, uh, family, those things have created, those are the first things you're going to go to in abundance. And me as a, you know, 
uh, early thirties, like Denverite, you know, trying to make my way in the world, you know, I'm like, I need to get the promotion and then I need to, you know, and I'm like, and I know I like, that's one of the reasons I love the intergenerational quality of, of our community is, is that I'm reminded like those things aren't what people talk about when they talk about abundance in their lives after they have more experience than I have. And these are people who've, you know, uh, been, you know, economically successful or not successful. And you can hear that I'm, I'm stuck in that a little bit as a early thirties Denverite and sort of the water I'm swimming in, but because you're trying to pay your rent. Right. right sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also I, I think, I mean, that's one of the things I love about brew theology is just the, that conversation of scarcity and abundance with people who have more years on this earth than I have. Well, I, d- I have like heard that as some of us younger ones express our fear of what's going on. And maybe f- for some of us feeling like we came out of a time that was a little more abundant with justice than it might feel like right now. And, and they just remind us, they're like, just relax. Like this is nothing compared to the seventies. <laughs> you're going to live through this. It's okay. Stop worrying about it. Like you're over like, and not that you're overreacting because honestly, I don't think any of them would ever say that because they wouldn't dismiss the fears of, of scarcity and injustice that I feel very strongly. Um, but they also want to say like, you're, you're not alone. This isn't just your fight. Like we're all in this and we're all sensing this, but you know, we lived through this once already and you're going to live through this too. And, and I think that that's one way that this, this plays out in community is hearing those different voices. Absolutely. Um, even in the midst of, you know, where we are in our context right now. All right. Thank you guys. Cheers. Cheers. Good times. And if you like what you heard, or if you didn't like it, even if you didn't like it, you can still go on iTunes and rate it and review it. Share it online. We're on Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. Facebook and Instagram, at Brew Theology. And then there's the website, brewtheology.org. We will see you later. Peace. Yeah, peace.